How Parties Recruit and Select Candidates, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Commentators often complain that primary voters are diverting American politics. But before they get input, local party leaders recruit and select candidates to run for office. So their preferences and behavior help produce the candidates that we see. Even if voters might support candidates from diverse occupations or ethnicities, Many candidates might never run if party leaders tap someone else. This week, I talked to Michael Miller of Barnard about his new Oxford book with David Doherty and Connor Dowling, Small Power. They survey and interview county party chairs, finding that they are important in determining local candidacies but have different preferences than primary voters and party activists. They're very concerned with local ties, and they fear their voters won't support black or Latino candidates. Their strategic discrimination means we don't get to see the full panoply of Americans on the ballot. They're critical to giving voters choices, even in places where partisan competition is weak, but their ideas about voters constrain the candidate pool. Here's our conversation. So you've uh, just published uh, Small Power. What were the biggest findings uh, and their implications? Well, we thought we wanted to write this book because we recognize that these folks are some of the most important actors in the political system. And uh, political scientists have focused on them in the past, but you know, local parties, I think, are really, really important across all of American politics. But we feel especially uh, their power when it comes to elections. And the guiding theory from this book, it really did start just as a simple, narrow paper kind of question, which was, if these folks are primarily responsible for recruiting candidates and our work really does establish that they are you know they go out into the community and they they see that insurance agent in town and they think that person would be great they should run for county board or state legislature or something like that well those people once elected rise up through the political system but if that initial contact is uh, guided by the expectations that that local party chair has, and those people have particular biases. Uh, we might get a kind of self-perpetuating system where the same kind of candidates are running uh, and r- rising up through the ranks of the political system, and that's what we set out to to look for. And and we find, uh, you know, that there are some attributes where the expectations that chairs have about who can win a race are at odds with uh, with the what what with what voters say, and so I think that's really an important finding of this book. So tell us about county party chairs. Uh, what uh, do they do? Who are they? Uh, and you know, you're taking kind of a view of American politics from their perspective. So what are the strengths in, uh, of looking at it from their viewpoint and the limitations? Well, I think anybody who's spent any amount of time close to electoral politics recognizes these people as the unsung heroes. Uh, you know, they are unpaid. They are, they tend to be kind of lifelong activists, most of them, but, but not all. Some of them come to this pretty late and rise through the ranks really quickly, but they're just average people who are partisans, who care quite a lot about, um, you know, carrying their party's banner and they get involved. And I think a lot of work in our field shows that getting involved is really the first step. 
towards towards mattering. And, and so these these are these are just normal folks who are working what approximates a, a full time job sometimes, especially in an election year, on top of the full time job that many of them already have. And and so what they're doing from the day to day is may, they might be running the party office. Not all parties have offices, especially in in smaller rural counties. Um, but they're they're making sure that if the you know the party has a get out the vote effort, they are kind of overseeing that. They're staffing booths and tables at at county fairs and other community. Uh, gatherings. They're riding floats in parades, and they're spending a lot of time recruiting and training candidates. They see that as the the biggest part of their job, identifying the people who have never been nudged uh, into politics and and getting them in the run. They look at a lot at the ballot, and what they're trying to do is fill out uh, the the making sure that they have you know a Democrat or a Republican for every single race in the ballot, and and so they are just really active and again i stress the vast majority of them receive no compensation for this work so they really are out there for the love of politics and their party so how important are they uh for candidate success and what's your your evidence that these uh chairs play primary roles and that the strength of these local parties matters well i think it depends on what you mean by by success right uh i i think in terms of filling out the ballot and making sure that their party has a presence, these organizations are really important. Uh, a dynamic chair, somebody who really is trying to motivate people around them to create this energy can have a huge positive impact. Uh, we heard particularly from Democrats in rural counties, you know, one of them said, we just want to make sure that people in our town know that Democrats don't have horns, right? Like that we're, we're average people and that there are Democrats and that it's safe to be a Democrat publicly out here. And, and they see that as, as a big part of their job, but that probably doesn't win them elections. Um, And, you know, that was actually one of the things that we, that we looked at is does an active local party actually matter in say an, an up ballot like a presidential or a senatorial race and one of the, some of our findings there were a little counterintuitive because we found that these parties are actually most consequential in areas where they haven't done well in the past and, and that to us implies that there's a there's a lot of uh, space for immediate success somebody to step in engage local parties and and uh and create an energy that may not have existed before. And so do they matter? I think our book shows that they matter sometimes and that the, the times when they matter are, are most likely to be where they um, have had, have struggled in the past. And from a research perspective, how do you think about, um, you know, saying X percent of County party chairs think blank um, when obviously counties are of very different sizes uh, and, you know, we have increasing uh, geographic polarization around density. So, um, you know, the average Democratic uh, county party chair is probably going to be in a Republican area. Uh, So how do you think about that? Well, that was absolutely something that we were running up against again and again, Uh, you know, from from a research standpoint, really one of the only ways you can address that is by trying to look at you know, your findings in a conditional sense. So does urbanity affect 
the way that Democrats are approaching their job sometimes, but not usually. Uh, and, and we also found that Republicans are pretty immune to, to the conditions of their county. So they were, they were especially rigid. But uh, I think, you know, rather than just relying on fielding a, a survey, um, you know, our approach was to deploy an experiment inside of the survey, which um, allowed us to kind of harvest these sometimes um, implicit biases that the chairs had with a conjoint experiment. And I think that's really the engine that underpins a lot of this work. So there is conditionality here, and we can look at the experimental results conditional on urbanity or the racial dynamics of a of a county. But we do believe that uh, the experiment is um, a really nice way to look at this the cognition of these chairs. The other thing that I think that is important about this book from a research standpoint is it's not just a survey and an experiment. We went through a lot of the country. We went through, you know, we, we would just fly into a part of the country, rent a car and drive across and, and talk to as many of these chairs that we can as we could. We were in dozens of these party offices and we got to ask them, you know, these questions. We we had already done the survey at this at this point in time. And so we just asked them, do you think that people from your party in other places would, would answer these questions differently? Or why do you think we found what we found? And that allowed us to really get a lot of uh, context on the quantitative results in the book. So you also uh, have comparison data from uh, members of the public in each party uh, and primary voters in, in each party. So is there a simple way to kind of summarize what you found there? Can you align their opinions ideologically or socially? What were the biggest differences between the, the public in each party and uh, the chairs? Yeah, returning to the original kind of theoretical expectation, we wanted to know if if the party chairs are out there recruiting candidates that they think are going to be successful in a primary, uh, are they right? You know, if, if there are gaps between what the, the chairs think and what voters will actually tolerate or, or even what they actually want, uh, that could fuel uh, problems in American politics where they don't necessarily need to be. And, and so there were a few avenues that we that we looked at. And one of them was uh, descriptive traits of the candidates themselves. It's really where this work started. We wanted to know if chairs were less likely to recruit women uh, as candidates and then candidates of color. And we and so the the way the way that we did this is we asked them who they thought would be viable in a primary election in their party. And then we asked voters as well and we were able to use the CES data and uh, validate primary voters. And so we have this, we, do, we use the same experiment on, on voters as we did on chairs. And so we're able to look at the results among the, the chairs saying who's going to win a primary election and then the people who actually vote in primary elections. And so on, on candidate attributes, we find that uh, women are actually not disadvantaged at all. Both chairs and voters are uh, actually favor women. And I can talk more about, that's a pretty interesting dynamics there. But we do see a discrepancy on race. Um, the voters of both parties are really sort of amb um, ambivalent about candidate race, but the chairs are less likely to uh, see them, uh, to see candidates of color. This is both black candidates and uh, Latinx candidates. Um, 
they're less likely to see them as viable. And this is really not dependent on party. In fact, the point estimates for Democrats are, are lower. Where we do see some partisan difference is uh, Democrats are less likely to downgrade candidates of color as the area that they represent is uh, becomes less white, whereas uh, this feeling among Republicans is pretty flat and immune to the dem demography of their county. So this implies to us that chairs might be uh, recruiting, uh, might not be recruiting candidates of color out of a belief that they can't win, which is a belief that we do not see among the electorate, which has obvious implications then for diversity of, of the candidate pool as well as legislatures and, and the like. We see some uh, some differences in terms of policy and compromise as well. Uh, for the most part, chairs of both parties are pretty good at at understanding what their voters want in the economic policy realm. But we do see some gaps when it comes to some of the social issues. And one of them, the, the most glaring one in this work is uh, guns. So chairs of both parties uh, really underestimate the tolerance of their electorate for uh, gun restrictions. This is the, the difference is starkest among Republicans, but even among Democrats, um, they could be fielding, our, according to our work, candidates who are um, more pro-gun regulation than, than what they're actually recruiting. Um, we also see, uh, and this was actually guided by your work uh, quite a bit, uh, we see an asymmetric uh, kind of polarization with respect to compromise. Uh, the, the Democrats... Um, both Democratic chairs and voters see candidates who are willing to work across the aisle for, for policy goals uh, as a, a, a net benefit. And, and so they're pretty much in line on, on that dimension. But Republican chairs see a compromising candidate as a liability. That is not the case for their voters. Republican voters actually according to our data, favor a candidate who wants to compromise with Democrats and work towards policy. But the chairs see a person like that as a detriment. And so the implication there is they may be recruiting candidates who are more ideologically rigid uh, than is necessary, which I think might fuel some of the, um, some of the patterns that your work, uh, previous work has uncovered. So how do uh, party chairs assess and evaluate uh, candidates? Um, you, you start with these kind of commitments and their local ties. So, you know, what are the first things that kind of come up in these open-ended interviews and how do they uh, evaluate, you know, someone locally? I think the two things that really come through from the interviews, and these are really backed by the, by the experimental data, but what's really clear in the interviews is that these chairs are most comfortable with somebody that they know. Uh, and and that, that really works on two dimensions. The first is how tied are you to the community? Um, if you are brand new to town, the, the chair is going to look very skeptically upon your, li your viability as a, as a candidate. Uh, contrast that with somebody who's you know, a third generation uh, resident of the town. Um, that they're really looking for those community ties. And that goes deeper than just residents, right? It's family ties. Do you have a business in town? All of that kind of social, those social capital variables are, are really, really important. But the other thing, and we heard this 
more from Republicans, I think, uh, is they want to know that you're actually a, a partisan. Um, so they want to have seen a prospective candidate, you know, either at party meetings or, you know, they will look, they will review letters to the editor that a person has written or social media activity. And they want to make sure that they're not being bamboozled. This is particularly a salient point among Republicans in rural areas, uh, according to our interviews, where, you know, the concern is that because they can't get elected as Democrats, Democratic uh, citizens will pretend to be Republicans in order to win office. And so these chairs did describe quite a lot of vetting that they will do to verify the bona fides of people that they're that they're less familiar with. But we did hear a few interesting stories of, um, shall we say, bad candidates who escaped this this vetting uh, procedure. So I think community ties and and party bona fides are really, really important for these folks. And what about uh, money in politics? Uh, do uh, candidates have to demonstrate ties to donors beforehand? Do they have to already be rich people who can ask other rich people for, for money? Or do the county chairs think uh, that they can they can find the donors for the right candidates? I think the answer to that, and we, like when we started this work, we definitely would have expected that fundraising ability would have been a really important uh, variable that these chairs were looking for, but we found a really wide variation with the approach that chairs took. And I think it, it depends a little bit on you know, urbanity. If, if you're in a, a city where you know, you, you're having to campaign on these major media markets, I think chairs there definitely see money as a more important uh, thing for a candidate to have, but they're also better networked, those urban parties, and, and are better able to assist candidates when it comes to raising money. But you know, some chairs thought that it was the, the first, second, and third thing that they wanted to see among a prospective candidate. And others felt like, you know, if we, if as long as you are uh, articulate, if you're charismatic, if you're not afraid to go knock on 40 doors a night, uh, you know, the fundraising is less important and will come as peop- as you get this buzz from, from being a good candidate. One of the things that we assessed in the experiment was occupation. So do party chairs look more favorably upon, say, a doctor or a lawyer? And we didn't really find any signal, any uniform signal anyway, about fundraising propensity from those occupations. But we did find, you know, social workers, for instance, did a little worse among Republicans, probably because of assumptions about their politics. And so occupation is sending a signal, but we don't think that fundraising capability is the major one. So I think on average, um, while many chairs do believe that fundraising is important to have, uh, it was a lot weaker relationship than we would have expected. So you did find some interesting occupational differences between the the parties. Um, You found that the Democrats like lawyers, Republicans like doctors. Um, Democrats disliked, I guess, the finance occupations category that you had. And you mentioned the social workers. What do you think is going on there? Is that um, just kind of self-reinforcing? We're not going to get candidates. We're not going to put candidates out who don't match people's preferred or people's uh, presumed partisanship or 
you know, are there actually just different things that candidates bring um, to each political party? I think on that one, it's really hard to know. You know, when we tried to ask about this in the interview, uh, most chairs weren't really all that interested in talking about occupation and they would just return back to, uh, you know, the discussion of community ties. But I, I think, you know, if anything, this is really ripe area for for further research. And I know, you know, Nick Carnes has been talking for a long time and in, in a couple of the books that he's written about uh, the difficulties that blue collar workers have. Um, I don't think there's anything in our work that suggests that blue collar workers do not have a, a hard time. Uh, and, and I think they do experience all of the headwinds that other work has previously identified. But I don't know that we can definitively say anything about why you know, a, a lawyer might be favored by a Democrat or a doctor by a, by a Republican. So you mentioned at least one instance in which uh, Republican chairs might be moving their candidates uh, rightward or towards uh, more uh, purist uh, views. Um, what, what can you say more generally about this, this polarization debate? Because it does seem like um, some people really are blaming party officials uh, and activists as being a big part of what's moving uh, parties to the, to the left and the right. Um, but, uh, other people say, you know, this is just primary voters, um, and if the candidates are just appearing to match their, their voters. So what, what does this analysis add to, to that debate? I think it's really hard to suss that out. Uh, we need to, so party chairs are, are a difficult kind of elite to study because, you know, they are primarily, they're not office holders. They're not, they're not elected and they're not really accountable to the broad electorate. So in, so in many ways they look kind of like a slightly more elite member of the mass public, but they're not a member of the mass public either. And, and so it's hard to really pull apart what their particular influence over a candidate would be. And, and it's also difficult to know, you know, are they driving, um, views among their local party committees or are they sort of along for the ride? I think it's probably more of the latter rather than unilaterally shaping the dynamics of an election. I think uh, the decisions that these chairs make are probably contributing to a broader environment, but they are making assessments about primary voters. Anytime they recruit candidates and and they can't control what those people think. We did hear particularly from Democrats uh, uh, quite a lot. And this work was done in the wake of the the 2016 election. Most of our interviews were before the 2018 midterm. And there were still all kinds of divisions from the the Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton camps. And so, you know, they're trying to navigate these and put candidates up that they think are going to be palatable to often a, a factional base. And so it's really difficult to pull all this apart. I think for the most part, the primary voters and the and the party chairs are, are sort of all in it together. And the party chairs are making these judgments, even though not all of them are, are correct all of the time, uh, as best they can with limited information. We should remember that most of these party organizations have no money. They can't even have an office that's open year round. Some of them can't even open an office during the election. So there's definitely not money for polling. So a lot of these decisions are made on gut 
and um, I, I would I would hesitate to to make a, any kind of causal uh, claims about the role that that any of these chairs are having on on forces in American politics. We also have these debates about whether primary elections, you know, move candidates uh, to the the extremes, and that that general election voters uh, might might prefer uh, candidates that that aren't at the extremes. Um, it seems like party chairs would be well positioned to kind of evaluate a candidate that might be good in a local primary, but that might not be good in a local general election. And I know most of these folks are in places where a lot of elections aren't going to be very close. Um, uh, so how, how do they think about if they think about that trade off between a general election and primary election? I think that they're happy for the most part to let market dynamics sort this out. Uh, a lot of the time, Democrats, especially in a lot of rural areas, are happy if they can just get a candidate on onto the ballot. Once they get a contested primary, there are a few things that they they may do. Um, you know, if if someone kind of comes out of nowhere to challenge an incumbent or or somebody that's been working for the party for a long time. They may work to encourage that person to run for something else, but most of the chairs told us that they really do take care not to stick their nose into these primary fights. If a candidate is really committed to running, then they're just going to let the dynamics of that primary play out. But they are very concerned about trying to fill that that ballot um, up and down. A- as you said, I, I think we really even political scientists overestimate the amount of general the number of general elections that are are actually contested enough for these kinds of calculations to to matter and and in a lot of places that the vast majority of places actually the 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 party chairs once a candidate has declared are really banned from favoring one candidate or the other and and they take that pretty seriously i think so you mentioned uh, your findings on uh, candidate race, um, which I cite all the time for um, local officials um, in particular, because we have uh, a lot of these uh, newly drawn districts um, that are not a majority uh, minority. Um, and I really see this dynamic playing out that you find that both parties really fear the viability of uh, black and Latino candidates, even though there's really not much sign from voters uh, that they would disfavor these candidates uh, in, in primaries uh, or general elections. So, um, you know, how do you see these findings um, and, and what implications do they have for the, the candidate uh, pool? And, and why do elites uh, not, not believe that these candidates can be successful? Yeah, these were some of this. This question was why we started this research. This was the one that we that we really wanted to answer. and it's really normatively disappointing to get this result where you have voters saying, really, I don't care. In some cases, I would actually prefer to have a candidate of color running. Um, and then you see these, uh, these negative effects for, for the, the chairs. And I think it's really important here to stress that the way that we collected this result was in a conjoint experiment that was designed to recover a latent preference. We didn't describe the candidate as black. We, we signaled the candidate's race with name, uh, which we thought was a subtle and more realistic signal of, um, you know, and what they had to do was choose between 
uh, a pair of candidates whose whose name was randomly assigned by the computer, and it's really really disappointing uh, to see this this result. And so one of the techniques that we used, we did the survey first, and then we went into the field with interviews, and we actually showed the chairs this result and asked them what what they thought about it. And you know what we heard was from both parties they're they're telling us i would really love to diversify my candidate pool republicans especially said it would be great if we could field more black candidates but where are they right and they they point to the dynamics of their their communities in many cases uh, pretty overwhelmingly uh, white populations and and they say where do i where do i draw the the candidates these candidates from that could have affected their their assessment but should not uh, have in in theory and so we're kind of left with a gap between what they tell us which is i want to recruit candidates of color uh and what they what this experiment that uncovers their their implicit bias is showing us. And I think what we have here is a pretty significant challenge for um, the long-term diversification of American elections, but I think arguably more importantly, legislatures as well, because you can't be elected into a legislature unless you are identified and encouraged to run as a candidate. And so one of the takeaways is that the implicit biases that these party chairs harbor may be impeding candidate recruitment. And, and in my opinion, um, I think almost certainly is for candidates of color. Well, let's stay on this uh, for a second, because I hear this uh, more explicitly. So the context that I hear it in is these newly drawn uh, districts, uh, which combine Detroit with their external areas. And people say very explicitly, you know, black candidates can't win in these districts because there's more, uh, you know, there's more white voters out, outside of them. And I think their response to your graph would be much more like, I don't believe the voters. Um, so I guess, how would you assess that that alternative? I think the dynamics of what we're seeing in places like Detroit, we we see this in Miami recently as well, and and frankly, a lot of other smaller towns where there's not media around to report on this. I don't know if that's a judgment about candidate viability so much as a fairly overt attempt to control elections, right? And we're we're seeing these things pick up more and more since the Shelby County decision, particularly in the South, where you have all of these formerly covered jurisdictions that would have had to pre-clear all of this, uh, now free to do whatever they want. And I, I see this, uh, and the Supreme Court has wrestled with this, all federal courts have wrestled with this, is that racial disenfranchisement or is it uh, a party or a community making judgments about the partisanship of voters, right? I think we should bring that forward and, and ask whether it's party gerrymandering or race, which is a difficult question to answer when party and race overlie to the to the extent that they do. Um, now, the, the retort to that would be, it doesn't matter, right? Because if the 
effect is to dilute racial uh, rep representation for minority voters, then we should be concerned not only about uh, the presence or absence of uh, minority candidates, but also about the rules of the game. I think uh, that for the most part, these chairs that we interviewed, they're partisans and they'll take a little edge wherever they can get it. And if that means redrawing district lines in a way that lines up with their party, even though they tell us about the importance of racial diversification of the candidate pool, if they can win a few more seats in the county council or the city council, I think they're going to be happy to, to take it. Um, and, and that, I think, is the, the reality that we're up against. The, the partisan stakes feel so high to, to both sides right now that they're willing to do just about anything to get an edge. So as you said, you don't find similar effects uh, for women. Uh, party chairs don't um, fear women candidates, and some voters prefer women candidates. Um, so why is it different for gender than race? Um, and I guess if that's uh, not the problem, why why is it still the case that uh, you know women are so uh, underrepresented in the candidate pool? Yeah, this part of the work was a lot of fun because when we went out in the field and talked to candidates, or excuse me, chairs, they backed up what political science researchers have been saying for you know the last 20 years and that is that uh, women when they run they have you know because they are they have less ambition and confidence in their own candidacy what happens is they wait longer uh, to run because they don't feel ready so by the time they emerge they come out with a, a broader social network. They have more work experience. They know more people. They're more mature. They've polished their um, their biography and everything else. And also because of this ambition gap, they, they tend to be very hardworking candidates. And the chairs recognize that. We heard again and again when they're assessing the, the key players throughout their party, they tell us it's always women who are uh, you know, staying later at, at the party meetings and making sure that everything's ready for the next day. And so the, the chairs you know, really recognize that and they see women all else equal as uh, probably a harder working candidate. And also that all is all else is not equal, that the women who do run are, are probably just more talented and skilled by virtue of, of having waited. Um, and that lines up you know, with voters, but the, the, you know, the, the, the overall point estimate for women in our, in our work is that uh, party chairs view them as better than baseline. So they actually exhibit a slight preference for women um, compared to men. And, and the reasons that they tell us just align almost perfectly with all of the work that has come out of the women in politics field. So this uh, work seems um, conversant with the old line of political science where we thought that, you know, there were these important local political elites and they made the candidates. Um, but there um, has been a lot of recent journalism suggesting that uh, th this is somehow changing, um, that elites are no longer key to recruiting and selecting candidates, that we have small dollar fundraising. We got online activists. We have uh, media led candidates who can be kind of in between separate from their parties. Uh, did you see any of that? And is there any sign that the role of these chairs is, is declining? I don't think so. Uh, 
because for the most part, these chairs are concerned with small races. That's what the title of the book is, Small Power. They they are powerful people, but they're projecting this power in within the the borders of a county. And so they're they're concerned with school board elections and uh, county council elections. Now there is evidence for for nationalization. It's everywhere, right? I and I think all of these folks are watching national news. They're thinking about federal issues, but not as much as uh, the typical voter. They're deeply immersed in the goings on in their county. They know what the what the issues are, and so we these are some of the most hyper locally focused people um, that I that I've ever ever encountered. Uh, so that was was really refreshing, honestly, to meet people who are still really heavily involved in their community. Now, I don't want to say, you know, these nationalizing trends and kind of outward looking fundraising strategies are unimportant or not real. They absolutely are. Um, But for the most part, we saw in these chairs people who are really focused on local politics. How different uh, were they across uh, regions uh, or or states? Um, and did you see evidence for kind of uh, geographic polarization as the self-reinforcing process where the parties just get less organization in the places that they're in decline and, and that might make them go further in decline? Well, there's a couple of ways to interpret that. On the, the last thing you said, the organization uh, aspect, I think for the most part, very, f- very few local parties receive any help from the state party. And, and I think that's something that, that'll, that I'd like people to know. Uh, I think there's an assumption among the average voter that you know, parties are organized top down, probably from the federal level, right? And money is flowing from the RNC or wherever, all the way down to you know, Wabash County, right? That's that's not the case. The the so the the commonality across the board, regardless of party, is that these organizations are really on their own. They receive very little assistance, even from their state party, and it's a constant struggle for them to try to keep the lights on, to even to have an office, to have a presence, and so so that was common. You know, this 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 resource struggle was was common across regions and across party, but we did detect uh, some important um, some important differences. And one of the the things that we we didn't really stress this in the book, but one of the things that we found interesting as we went from you know the north to the south, you know, we were we were I, I I can't say exactly what. Well, I won't ref now. Let me break that and I'll start again. So we did see some important differences uh, as we went from north to south. And we didn't stress them in the book, but we did find them interesting. And, and, and that was the way that the party chairs talked about race. So particularly on the Republican side, we found that the chairs were extremely conversant in racial issues. Uh, they were very comfortable talking about race and and said, look, you know, here in Georgia or Mississippi, uh, this has been a problem in the past. And we recognize that and we want to overcome that legacy. And so they're sort of wearing that and, and saying, you know, I'm deeply committed to moving beyond that 
and to building an inclusive Republican Party. But when we were in northern states talking to Republicans, the dynamics of our conversations about race were completely different. There, the, the chairs there were on a, a very uh, defensive footing. Um, you know, we 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 saw them questioning our results and our and our motivation. And so, you know, you had a, uh, asked earlier about the the implications of our findings about race. Those conversations with chairs, particularly on the Republican side in the North, suggested that that might be where these effects on race are most likely to manifest, uh, just based on the the reaction that we saw there. So you've uh, done a lot of work on uh, campaign finance, um, including a lot of work on these um, sort of newer entities that allow candidates to raise money independently of parties um, or kind of allow uh, potential donors to to pool resources into another non-party actor that acts like a a party. Um, How has understanding kind of the role of local party leaders uh, changed or or updated uh, your views or the the views of, of that research? Well, I think that it I think it's it's right that we are in a really new place when it comes to campaign finance. And I think we have to throw out a lot of what we previously thought we knew about donor mo- motivation and funding strategies in this small dollar internet driven era. But I think that at the local level these parties are still important. It, it could be that, and we've seen it, right? We've seen candidates uh, at the federal or some state uh, candidates kind of circumvent their party and make an end, round, end run around the party organization because they're able to swing these small dollar contributions like a hammer. But I think at the local level, the party is still really important because you're talking about neophyte candidates who many of many of whom have never run for anything before don't even know what the fundraising laws are and they need that person and that that committee to come in there and tell them and and we heard chairs tell us again and again like um i will come in on a saturday and help you fill out your paperwork if you tell me that you're going to run for office I will connect you with the five top people who are donors for our party. And I'm going to personally introduce you to them, right? So there's still a lot of networking facilitation that's going on. They are able, I think, because they know, they, they've been in the room before and they know what it takes to run a campaign. They're able to really serve as a springboard to launch somebody from you know, I alluded earlier to the to the insurance salesman on the on the corner of, of Main Street, right? You can launch that person from citizen to candidate in a, in a couple of weeks with some intense training, and you know we saw quite a lot of evidence that that, that that's what's happening, and the dynamics of the, the of the small dollar you know broad internet appeals I think are very real, particularly in federal races. But I'm not sure that we're at the place uh, where you know that's happening in in city council races. That being said, given the dynamics just recently in the last couple of years with what we've seen on some school board elections, uh, I think 
that's a really interesting kind of election to watch right now to see if, um, you know, our local school board politics becoming nationalized. And so my hypothesis would be that uh, school boards will be the first ones to kind of fall into that model. But I don't think we're there yet. So you mentioned you do find some uh, differences between Democratic and Republican chairs, uh, but most of the book talks about them serving kind of similar uh, roles. Um, so, and you did go out and talk to these people. So, so to what extent, you know, are these parties functionally uh, similar uh, versus, um, you know, really quite different entities? Well, I think the day-to-day nuts and bolts uh, approach to running a party is pretty much the same no matter where you go, the, the key variable will be how much money do I have and how many people do I have to activate and, and touch from a get out the vote standpoint. So, so that is, that's all very, very similar. Um, I think though that the, the strategic footing that the parties tend to find themselves on is very different in, in much of America. You know, when you look at a County map, you'll, you'll see that um, you can drive from coast to coast and never leave a a Republican controlled County if you plan your route the right way. And I think uh, what we saw in our book is that many of uh, the Republican organizations because of this are on sort of an offensive footing. They know they have an advantage, particularly in these rural areas and and they're pressing that the Democrats uh, tend to be uh, a little bit, more resource challenged in these areas and, uh, and struggle a little bit more to, to fill out their ballot. And so we saw uh, just in terms of optimism uh, and energy, a little bit of a gap between the, the parties. But I think that's just more to do with the uh, political base of the parties uh, right now, uh, more than when anything else. As far as running and recruiting and supporting uh, their party, I think just about everybody sees their role pretty much the same. So what's next for you or your, your chance to tout uh, what you're working on now or anything we didn't get to that you want to include? Well, I'm not working on party chairs anymore. I've moved on uh, now. I've, I've just published a, a recent paper looking at the behavior of uh, members of Congress. So it looked at, uh, you know, whether, uh, women were more likely to be interrupted in, in Congress. And surprise, we found that they are. And so uh, my co-author, Joe Sutherland, and I have decided to expand that work. We're working on a book-length project right now about uh, undemocratic behaviors in Congress by members of Congress. And so we're, we're hard at work, and we're hoping to, to come up with a manuscript next year. What are some of those other undemocratic behaviors besides interruptions? Uh, well, we're looking at um, well, one of the interesting uh, questions that we are able to look is the, w- at the general tone of debate when it comes not only to interruptions, but, you know, are we adhering to decorum, uh, things like this? Uh, are we, is this repeating, right? Or are we, do we see epochs of repeating kinds of behavior? So we can compare the current moment uh, to the 1930s, the 1880s, the 1850s, when, you know, people were also pointing at a polarized kind of environment to see whether, you know, history is repeating itself or if we're in something kind of new. But the general idea here is that, you know, if you adapt a kind of a war footing where you're uh, cutting people off and advancing an agenda and engaging in indecorous behavior, um, you might get elected that way. But 
we're wondering if it spreads once in Congress, right? Like you're kind of patient zero. And so we're very early. I don't have anything um, to tell you as far as results, but that's uh, where we're going to be sticking our noses for the next little while. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, all linked on our website. Congressional Primaries, How the Parties Fight Insurgents. How the Tea Party Paved the Way for Donald Trump. Do the Parties Prefer White Male Candidates? Multiracial Electoral Coalitions for Minority Candidates. How Rich White Residents and Interest Groups Rule Local Politics. Thanks to Michael Miller for joining me. Please check out Small Power and then listen in here next time. Thank you.